Well, good morning. And good morning to F3 downstairs. Glad you're with us. 75 years ago <clears throat> this month, uh, the largest amphibious invasion of the history of mankind was being staged and was about to, uh, was about to begin. It would be known as D-Day. And for over two years, men and supplies, uh, armament, uh, had been building up uh, throughout Great Britain for this massive, massive undertaking. Every, every square inch, I think, of the English southern coast was filled with uh, supplies and men. Over two million troops from 12 different countries were being amassed. Uh, 10,000 aircraft were uh, um, on airfields ready to fly across the channel. Uh, 7,000 nautical vessels were um, uh, being amassed to, to go across the channel carrying troops and supplies. Um, Seven million tons, 7 million tons of supplies were stockpiled in these staging areas uh, throughout the southern coast of England. And in the month of May alone, 75 years ago, two million tons had come in to Great Britain. Never before in the history of mankind was such a massive staging of, uh, of military might and hardware. And of course, when the weather cleared on June 6th, uh, the word was given and the command was given and all these armaments that had been loaded, 160,000 men were ready to go to the coast. Uh, they left the shores of southern England and found their way to the beaches of northern France. Operation Overlord had begun. And of course, less than a year later, the war in England, or the war in Europe, was, uh, was over. The Bible speaks of another coming staging of a, of a massive world war. It speaks of a time, a cataclysmic time, uh, that is going to befall this world at the end of human history as we know it. It's typically called the Battle of Armageddon, which is maybe more of a misnomer. It's a, a campaign of Armageddon. Uh, because there will be various battles. But they have one purpose in mind, and that is to annihilate the Jewish people. Now, please understand that throughout our study of Isaiah, and I've mentioned this various times, um, as we talk about these prophetic events, I understand that there's various views taken by many, many good scholars on prophetic scriptures. The differences of perspective, I think, are, can be attributed oftentimes to the confusion as we read prophetic scripture, the confusion that comes when you realize that an author would, as he, as he gave that prophetic scripture out, some of what he had to say involved events of his own lifetime. Some of what he is saying has to do with the coming of Christ the first time 2,000 years ago. Some of what he has to say has to do with what is going to take place in the future when Christ returns again. 
And the confusion comes when all of those things can be fought in one verse. Uh, we've, I put up this graphic before with, uh, like Isaiah the prophet, uh, it was like looking at mountain peaks, peaks, but not understanding that there's valleys of time in between. Some of what Isaiah prophesied had to do with the Assyrian invasion that took place in his own day. He witnessed it, he experienced it. But some of what Isaiah wrote had to do with an event that would take place about a hundred some years after Isaiah died. And that was the invasion of Babylon that came and took the people of, of uh, Israel, uh, Judah, Benjamin and Judah, the two southern tribes, into captivity in Babylon. Some of what Isaiah prophesied had to do with the first coming of Jesus Christ, like Isaiah chapter 7 talked about uh, a virgin will be with child. And some of what Isaiah says has to do with an event that has not yet happened when Jesus Christ returns again. So as Isaiah uh, communicates this, and I'm not sure how or if Isaiah understood those different mountain peaks, I don't know. I'm certain he doesn't under, didn't probably understand the time frames in between them, because as he was speaking these things under divine inspiration, it was like looking at the different mountain peaks and not seeing the different valleys in between. Confusion comes by trying to understand these different prophetic time periods. Now here at Fellowship Bible Church, uh, we understand a particular eschatology, a teaching of biblical prophecy of, 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 of times that are yet to come that looks something like this. As Isaiah preaches, he communicates about Christ's first coming some 700 years uh, from his day. And then there's this period of time after Jesus left this earth that we are living in now that's called the church age. It's been going on for almost 2,000 years. It's an undefined period of time. But the Bible teaches that there's going to be coming an event where the church is going to be taken away from this earth. It's called, we call it the rapture, the great snatching up, the great taking away. And we teach here that that takes place prior to another period of time that's called the tribulation. It's a seven-year period of time that we often call in the book of Daniel, Daniel's 70th week. And at the conclusion of that time of great tribulation, Jesus returns in his second coming to this earth physically, bodily, and establishes an earthly kingdom, the consummation of all of the ages. God is going to put right this earth that he created so beautifully that went so awry because of sin, and he's going to put it all back together again in what is called this time of the kingdom on earth, the millennium. That's how we understand prophecy. Now, I will say this. Don Hartog is going to, later this summer, do a, a six-week series on biblical prophecy that you're not going to want to miss. And uh, knowing Don, he's going to fill in a lot of the gaps of what I've just shared with you right now. But I want to begin this morning our study in the last book, the book of Revelation. I don't want to just read a couple of verses to you. John wrote this in a vision he saw, Revelation 16, 13 and 14. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, that's the evil trinity, the dragon, the beast, the false prophet, I saw three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole earth 
to gather them together for the war of the great day of God, the Almighty. And verse 16 says, and they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Now, I'm not going to uh, talk to you about the frogs and the demons and all that stuff. Suffice it to say, there's a day coming when Satan and his minions are going to stir up in the hearts of the kings of the world leaders to come together in a place called Armageddon. Now, if you've been to Israel, uh, there is a, uh, this valley of Jezreel, this valley of Megiddo. Uh, later in this year, another group of, I don't know, 40, 50 people from FBC around here are going to be going on another one of these excursions to Israel. Uh, here at FBC, and one of the places you'll go is to this uh, ancient uh, uh, place called Megiddo, and you'll be able to look out over Megiddo and see this vast valley called the, the Plain of Megiddo or the Valley of Jezreel. And it will be here, according to Revelation 16 and other passages, that will become the staging ground of a series of battles that will rage throughout the, the Middle East, the Holy Land, in the closing days of what Jesus called the Great Tribulation. It's not that necessarily the battles will take place here. It, this is the staging ground. Now, the prophet Zechariah added this in Zechariah chapter 14. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished, and half of the city exiled, and the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Now, Zechariah 13, the previous chapter, adds this. Do I have that up there? It says, It will come about in, in all the land, declares the Lord, that two parts of it will be cut off, and a third will be left in it. Now, what these passages are talking about is unimaginable, um, unimaginable horror, unimaginable destruction. Two-thirds of the Jewish people, it seems to imply here in Zechariah, are going to be wiped out. One-third will be spared, a, a, a remnant will be spared. Now, again, if we went back to the book of Revelation, there's some things added there. Verse 6 of chapter 12, it says that, And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she, and that referring to Israel, the Jewish people, this remnant of the Jewish people, she fled into the wilderness, where she hath a place prepared of God, that they should be fed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days. And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into this wilderness into her place where she is nourished for a time, times, and a half time from the face of the serpent. It seems to imply here that God has prepared a place for this remnant of the Jewish people, a safe haven, at least for a time. Some place away from Israel, some place in, in a wilderness, some hidden place where God is prepared and this remnant of people are taken in safety. Now, where is that place? The place that God prepared for the people. 
Again, another Old Testament prophet, Micah 2, may give us some information on that. Micah 2.12, I will surely assemble all of you, Jacob. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like sheep in the fold. Now, literally, that phrase is, I will put them together like sheep, the sheep of Basra. That's what it literally says in, in Hebrew. All of our translations except the King James Version. King James Version pegged it right. King James Version said, I will put them together like the sheep of Basra. All our other translations say, I will put them together like sheep in a sheepfold because the word Basra means a sheepfold. Only the King James translates it as Basra. Now that's significant because Basra is a literal place south of uh, south and east of Jerusalem in ancient Edom or a place in modern day um, Jordan it's near a place that's you may have heard the term Petra a fortress city anybody here been to Petra if you've been on a on a yeah there's just a, a few of you if you've been uh, on some excursions over there in Israel. Petra, a rock fortress that's near Basra of ancient Edom. Many Bible teachers of prophecy believe that this place, Petra, near Basra, is where these remnant of Jewish people will escape for safety. A place prepared, Revelation 12 says, by God himself for this remnant. However, the Jewish remnant will not be safe there. Certain doom will come. As the armies of the world gather together on the plain, something terrible is going to take place in Basra. Jeremiah 49 says this, For thus says the Lord, Behold, those who are not sentenced to drink the cup will certainly drink it. And are you the one who will be completely acquitted? You will not be acquitted. You will certainly drink it. For I have sworn by myself, declares the Lord, that Basra will become an object of horror, a reproach, a ruin, a curse. All its cities will become perpetual ruins. Something is going to take place at an ancient city known as Basra and those surroundings in modern-day Iraq or uh, Jordan, possibly in this ancient rock fortress called Petra. Let's turn our attention then to the book of Isaiah, because Isaiah has something to say about this. Let's start with Isaiah chapter 34. Back in Isaiah chapter 34, verse 1. Isaiah 34, verse 1 says, Draw near, O nations, Draw near to hear and listen, O peoples. Let the earth and all it contains here, and the world and all that springs from it, for the Lord's indignation is against all the nations and his wrath against all their armies. He has utterly destroyed them. He has given them over to slaughter, so their slain will be thrown out, and their corpses will be given off the stench, and the mountains will be drenched with their blood." Something massive is being referred to here. Now, if we take 
Scripture as we should at face value, read it literally. What is it saying here? Verse 2, the Lord's indignation against all the nations, his wrath against all of their armies. We can conclude, I think, that something is going to happen that if you look back on the history of mankind, has not happened yet. Where all the nations are gathered and all the armies, and God is going to pour out his wrath in a great slaughter of the nations of the world. I would conclude that since Noah's flood, there never has been a time in human history where something that we just read has taken place. Something is yet to come. Go down to verse 5. For my sword is satiated in heaven. Behold, it shall descend for judgment upon Edom and upon the people whom I have devoted to destruction. Verse 6, the sword of the Lord is filled with blood. It is sated with, with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats and the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra. A great slaughter in the land of Edom. He's using this imagery of, of sacrifices, of, of what is taking place with animals. He's applying it to the nations of the world, the armies of the world. And he says there is a sacrifice going to take place in Basra, a great slaughter in Edom. Verse 7, wild oxen shall also fall with them, and the young bulls with strong ones, and thus their land shall be soaked with blood, and their dust become greasy with fat. For the Lord, verse 8, for the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion, Israel. God's judgment, Isaiah is saying, his day of vengeance, of wrath, is going to fall upon the nations of the world at a place that seems to be called Basra in Edom, modern-day Jordan. Something cataclysmic is going to take place. Why? Why Basra? Because the remnant of the Jewish people have fled there to this place in Basra. And the armies of the world are after them, stirred up demonically, satanically, according to Revelation 16, to annihilate them. Now what happens next is stunning in its ferocity and its glory. So turn with me to Isaiah 63. That's as far as we've worked up now through our study of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 63, starting in verse 1. We read it earlier. Let's look at it again. Isaiah 63, verse 1. And it's as if Isaiah in some vision sees something and he asks in verse 1, who is this who comes from Edom with garments of glowing colors from Basra? This one who is majestic in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. Isaiah sees something. He sees one in all the glory, like Shekinah glory, coming from Basra. 
Who is this one coming from Edom, from Basra? And then he speaks. It is I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. And now we know who it is. Who speaks in righteousness and is mighty to save? What has Isaiah been telling us throughout these chapters? The coming one, the servant of the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, in all his shining glory, the one who speaks with righteousness and is mighty to save. This is the one coming from Basra of Edom. But the question is asked of him in verse 2, why is your apparel red, your garments like the one who treads in the winepress? As this image comes closer and, and Isaiah focuses, he sees that his glowing garments are now, they're, they're splattered like one who's been stepping and, and, and marching in a winepress, the grapes, and their stains. And he says in verse 3, this glowing one coming from Basra, I have trodden the wine trough alone, and from the peoples there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath, and their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments, and I am stained. I stained all my raiment. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption has come. I looked, and there was no one to help I was astonished. There was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought salvation to me, and my wrath upheld me. And verse 6 said, I trod down the peoples in my anger, and I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. His garments splattered with the blood of people, like one who treads in a wine press. And Jesus Christ, this one who has come, calls it his day of vengeance. The year of redemption has come. And he does it alone. I looked and there was no one with me. And this one does something horrific in Basra, in Edom, as he wipes out the armies of the nations that have come. And he does it alone. Total and complete destruction. Now turn with me to Revelation again. Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. And as I read this, I think you'll see the similarities. Revelation 19, verse 11. John says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. Isaiah 63, Who is this who comes from Edom, from Basra? It is I, the one who speaks righteousness mighty to save. He comes in righteousness. He judges. He wages war. Verse 12, his eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. 
and he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And verse 14 says, the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh is a name that is written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And verse 17 says, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in the midheaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, small and great. And verse 19 says, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. I think this is taking place in a region of modern-day Iraq that was anciently called Basra. We just read it in Isaiah 63. But what is now described in verse 20 21 of Revelation 19 fills in a little bit of the story from Isaiah 63. So look at verse 20. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. And these were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Complete and total victory by the one who speaks with righteousness and mighty to save. The glorious one, who is this who's come? It is the Lord Jesus Christ who has come, and he destroys the enemies. You remember the words... We read earlier in Isaiah chapter 34, the sword of the Lord is filled with blood. It is sated with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra, a great slaughter in the land of Edom. The sword of the Lord. I, John sees it in the Revelation chapter 19 as if it's coming out of his mouth. And he speaks or he commands destruction. And the armies of the world fall. And his garments are splattered with the blood of the people. Boy, is this not disturbing? <laughs> Would God really do that? I thought... God was, you know, this God of love and compassion and grace and mercy. And now we read in Isaiah and other passages of Scripture, the day of vengeance is coming, and he will tread the winepress. The fierce wrath of his wrath will be poured out. And in an instant, the armies of the world will be laid waste and his blood-splattered garments will be seen because the sword will speak judgment. Is that it's a little unnerving? 
God is a God of love and grace, a God of mercy and compassion. But we're seeing something different here. Something is going to happen at the end of human history as we know it when the nations of the world will be gathered against God's chosen people, the remnant, who he has hidden away for safety in a place called Basra. Why would God do this? Jude 14 and 15 gives us certainly insight. It was also about these men that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they've done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Will God Almighty act in wrath and vengeance? Yes against the ungodly. Four times that word is mentioned in Jude 14 and 15. Let me just say, folks, that a day is coming. Another D-day for the world of unrighteousness and ungodliness. It's a day when Jesus Christ will return a second time and will rain death and destruction upon this sinful world. Isaiah called it the day of vengeance, and it most certainly will be a day of vengeance upon the ungodly. Now, there's so much more to say, so many more passages, and this is just very quickly. Um, that the question. And, and, and later in Isaiah 63, he, he, he does talk, he comes back to that theme of, of God's compassion and, and he, he breaks out in prayer and we'll, we'll, we'll look at that next week. But as we consider this and ponder this very sobering truth, the question is, so how should I live today knowing that this is going to happen tomorrow? I think Paul gives some key insights about how we are to live today in light of that the day of vengeance is going to come. He tells us in Romans chapter 12, verse 19, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay. See, I think the Apostle Paul is answering the question, how should I respond to those who mistreat me? <laughs> to those who do me wrong, to do me dirty? What's a follower of Jesus Christ to do when you've been mistreated and wronged? The unjust employer who cheats you out of that promotion gives it to someone less worthy. The so-called friend who is spreading the gossip and the lies about you. The unfaithful spouse who's crushed your heart. The high school coach who has sexually abused you. The sibling who cheated you out of that inheritance. The government 
that brings unjust laws and persecutes the people of God. What do you do living in a world, in a life that, of sin, of, of where ungodliness mistreats people, oppresses people, does people wrong? Paul says, don't take your own revenge. Don't attempt to mete out your own punishment. Don't take matters into your own hands. Leave room, he says, for the wrath of God, because it was God who said, I'll handle it. Vengeance is mine. I'll repay. God has creative ways in his own time and his own ways to deal with those who mistreat, who oppress, who act ungodly. Now, that doesn't mean that he hasn't given us some means by which we can seek out um, justice. As body of believers, Matthew chapter 18 tells us that if someone offends you, sins against you, you go and reprove them. If they don't listen, you take two or three. If they don't listen then, if they're still hard fast in their sin, then you go to the church. You tell it to the church. Church discipline. It's a way in this life that justice can be meted out. Vengeance of God is allowed that within the body of Christ. If you go to um, the next chapter over from Revelation uh, 12 and Revelation 13, the Apostle Paul wrote this in verse 3. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Well, then do what is good, and you'll have praise from the same. And then he says in verse 4, for government, for it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. It is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. So when a government is to be working like it should, designed by God, God says, I can use the, the, the long, strong arm of the law to do my work of avenging evil, even in this life. The Bible also tells us, as believers in Jesus Christ, God will deal with all of us as believers. We might maybe didn't get satisfaction from going to the church. There was no legal recourse. We have been done wrong. Paul says, don't take vengeance into your own hands. Don't act sinfully to punish in retribution those who have wronged you. But take courage because one day all believers, he said, will stand before the 2 Corinthians 5, the judgment seat of Christ. That means all of us. If you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, folks, every one of you, including me, are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and we're going to give an account. Everything will be exposed. But I was done wrong. I was done dirty by that spouse, by that coworker within the church. I was, I, just, just settle down. Because one day at the judgment seat of Christ, everything will be revealed. For believers in Jesus Christ, that day is coming.
But as we've seen in Isaiah 63 and Isaiah 34, Revelation 19, there is another day coming, a day of vengeance, and God will repay all wickedness and all evil on that day. A day of vengeance, it's coming, and it's his job to repay, and he will do it. He is far more creative and far more thorough and far more complete than we could ever be. Let it go. Do not take revenge. God will deal with it. Over the times of ministry that I've had, 38 years, there's been various times that people have sat in my office, whether it was a broken marriage, a believer who's struggled with a job situation of, of, of unjust treatment in some form or fashion. And yes, we can go to the church and there are civil authorities that we can deal with, but sometimes things are just not going to be made right on this earth. We live in a fallen world. They just simply will not be made right. And I've had to encourage people and pray with people to say, just, you just got to back away from this. It's going to eat you alive. Bitterness is going to come in. Just let it go because rest assured there's a day of vengeance coming and God is far more creative than you'll ever be to exact that vengeance. Let it go. Never repay evil with evil, said Paul in that same Romans passage. This is what he said, by the way, to the church in Thessalonica. God would afflict those who afflicted the church. He says, verse 6, for after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. The church in Thessalonica was being severely persecuted to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. You mean I got I to gotta wait till then? Yep. And he'll deal out, verse 8, retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. And when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day, and to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. Oh, God will do it. There's a day coming. They will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Remember what Isaiah chapter 35 said? Encourage the exhausted, strengthen the feeble, say to those with anxious heart, take courage, fear not, behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, and he will save you. Take courage. When we are ministered or mistreated, when we are abused, when we are persecuted for the cause of Christ, God's word says, don't take revenge, take courage, because the day of vengeance is going to come. It, it'll all be put right. It'll all be put right. Last week, Dennis McNutt shared in this great sermon, great message of the earlier chapters in Isaiah 60 through 62, that we can take courage because there's a glorious day coming when the kingdom of God will come. A glorious day. Jesus is coming. He's going to set up righteous kingdom on earth. Well, Isaiah 63 is also saying take courage because a day of vengeance is coming. And God will deal with the ungodliness. 
Jesus Christ, I think, is the greatest example. We don't have time to turn there. 1 Peter chapter 2, it says he gave us an example to follow in his footsteps when we suffer because when he suffered and was reviled, he didn't revile in return, but he just kept entrusting himself to the Father who judges righteously. Folks, can you give it up? That hurt that has come upon you, can you give it up and entrust it to the Lord? Because he's coming, and it's a day of vengeance. Let me close this morning with just this word of warning. If you are here today as a believer in Jesus Christ, you know you're he heading to heaven, you have eternal life, then guard your heart against a revengeful spirit that simply takes that hurt and keeps nursing it and coddling it that's going to eat you alive in bitterness. Leave room for the wrath of God, for it will surely come. Entrust it to the Lord as Jesus did. And take courage that one day a holy God in his proper time will deal out the retribution. Ungodliness will be dealt with. But let me also say that if you're here today and you're not sure where you will spend eternity, I cannot be more sober and more burdened for you today. You may be here and you're not sure that if you were to die tonight where you would spend eternity because you have been holding on to a belief that says, I think by my good works I can get to heaven. If you were to, someone were to ask you if you were to die tonight and stand before God and he were to say, why should I let you into my heaven? Your answer would be something like, well, I've, I've tried to be a, a good person. I mean, I've tried to obey the Ten Commandments. I've, 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 done, I've tried to be a good business person, a, a good family person. I, I, I... And folks, hear the word of the Lord. Eternal life is given not because of how good you are, and if you're basing your eternal life on how good you are, you will perish for eternity. And you will be on the receiving end of the eternal wrath of God. Because you see, Jesus came to this earth and he paid for your sins and he did all the work for you. You can't outwork Jesus Christ and he offers you a free gift he offers you the free gift of eternal life if you simply put your trust in him. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but has everlasting life, will not perish but have everlasting life. And so if you've never put your trust in Jesus Christ, I plead with you, do it right now. What does that look like? Well, how do you trust anything? Do you, I just shared the good news of Jesus. Do you believe it? Will you rest your entire eternity on the fact that Jesus died and rose again for you? And when you transfer your trust off of yourself onto him and him alone, in that moment of faith, Jesus says, you receive the free gift of eternal life. You're born again. Have you trusted him? Have you stopped trusting yourself? Put your trust in him because there's a day coming.
And God is going to pour out his wrath and his vengeance on all who've never put their trust in Christ. Trust him today. Book of Revelation, chapter 19, talks about in the early part of chapter 19 that there's going to be something that's called the marriage supper of the Lamb, where those who know Jesus as their Savior are going to gather in joy in his presence and partake of this marriage supper of the Lamb as the bride of Christ. Oh, it'll be a wonderful day, and folks, I'm going to be there because I've trusted Christ, not because I'm good. And if you've trusted Christ, you're going to be there. But we read at the end of chapter 19 of Revelation, there's another feast that's coming as the birds of the air swoop down and eat the flesh of the destroyed peoples of God that God is going to destroy. You don't want to be there. You want to be at the first supper. Put your trust in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. It's the only way to avoid the coming day of vengeance. Let's pray. Father, only you and your Holy Spirit can convict us. No words of a man can do that. And I pray right now that your Holy Spirit, if there's someone in this room who is yet to put their trust in Christ, may they do it this moment and cry out to you, save me, Lord Jesus. I believe you died and rose again for me. And thank you for the promise in that moment eternal life is granted. Thank you, Lord, that you poured out your wrath on Jesus and we can be safe in him in the moment of faith. We trust you for that in Christ's name. Amen.